So hello, I'm um, Theo Blackmore from Disability Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, and today I'm talking to Tracy Lazard. Tracy Lazard, and uh, who, where do you work, and who do you work with and for? Okay, so I I'm the CEO of Inclusion London, and that's a pan London disability equality organisation run by and for deaf and disabled people. Um, I've worked in the movement and for deaf and disabled people's organisations for over 30 years now. So I used to run a kind of frontline DDPO in Islington. Oh, OK. Was that DAII? It was, yeah. OK. I was talking about DAII the other day because I've got a colleague, who, a friend who worked with that organisation. And maybe they worked with you back in the day. I can't remember who I was talking to. It will come to me at some point, maybe. OK. And so you um, said that DAIO there is a frontline disabled people's organisation. What is, um, is that different from Inclusion London? Yeah, um, yeah, thanks, um, Theo. It is. So um, I've got the kind of privilege of working for, um, in the jargon term, terminology, a infrastructure second tier organisation. So we're, I think, I believe we're the only DDPO that is a second tier organisation. And what I mean by that is that we um, don't work with individual disabled people. We support frontline DDPOs um, to have, um, you know, to deliver good services, to have strong, sustainable organisations and to have a strong and collect strong collective um, voice. So our job is to support local DDPOs and there's about 70 seven o of those in london that's amazing so there's seven o in london how many london boroughs are there there's 33 boroughs and there's probably at the moment about six or seven boroughs without uh ddpo um and probably another handful with a barely kind of functioning organization but most boroughs still do have a classic kind of pan impairment borough-based um, organisation. Plus, of course, there are activist groups. There are kind of specific issue groups. Um, I know you had Winvisible on. And, you know, so um, Winvisible are, are based in Camden, but that's another organisation we work with. So there's quite a few and a growing kind of um, group of of DDPOs kind of outside the traditional kind of locality based organisation. And I think, you know, the, one of the things we've spoken about this before, and I've spoken about it before in other podcasts, is that these organisations, you know, what we lack is we lack core stability. And so organisations come and organisations go. And in fact, I put together a map of disabled people's organisations across the country, and I put a few organisations on that in the London area. And one of them closed down last year. I think was it is it in Barnet? Was that the one that closed? Um, um, I don't think so. I mean, Barnet inclusion Barnet is probably one of our you Not know most no. okay. So was it Dab? Right. Wow. Dab actually is the first organisation I ever worked with back in like nineteen ninety two. Um, but yeah. So um. Yeah, I, I believe DAB. I didn't realise they shut just last year. 
I, I thought they'd gone a while before. That. Right. Yeah, it might have been the case. Anyway, so there are organisations that come and go. So although coverage might look quite good in London, like you say, there are boroughs that don't have disabled people's organisations and there are boroughs, I, I guess I guess that means that the work in adjoining boroughs is, is much harder because they might be covering two boroughs. Double the yeah, so, I mean, you definitely have big gaps um, and there is a huge lack of funding and capacity to support communities to establish and set up their own organisations. But we also, in parallel, have a really chronic, ongoing problem with lack of funding. So organisations, DDPOs, that are up and running have huge limitations and challenges and restrictions on what they, they can do. And that's really having a really kind of following out impact on, on our sector and our movement. And so there are there are very few people that I'll be able to talk to around the country who have the level of knowledge that you have, because like you say, you support organisations across the whole of London. So you must have a really good overview and a really good picture about what these organisations are facing in, in terms of key issues at the moment and what disabled people in many ways are facing in terms of key issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's true. And it is a real, it's it's an exciting, and I said it's a privilege to kind of occupy that kind of pan London bird's eye view. Um, and um, I think we have got a good picture of what's happening in London. I think at the same time that you were doing research across the country, Theo, we were also with another group of DDPOs across England. We were funded by the lottery to do a bit of research on the state of our sector. And we um, that report came out about 18 months ago. So that that kind of gave a very a good view across the country. And, and virtually without fail, most of the issues that we identified still apply to London DPOs. But we've got a lot of commonality in terms of the issues that affect our sector and our movement where, wherever you are I think. Yeah I think that's true I often talk about disabled people in rural areas and some of the specific issues that we face down here in Cornwall so you know there are issues about sort of really poor transport infrastructure support there's issues about isolation and people being stuck in the middle of nowhere with literally no support for miles around and difficulty getting to towns and villages you know there was one village down here in Cornwall where the bus came in at a certain time and that was also the same bus that went out so if you've got the bus out you'd have to wait 24 hours before you get back in again so Amazing. you know yeah. there's all sorts of things like that but I think probably there are similar issues in London in terms of people getting out and about and going around and feeling connected and included. Totally so I mean I would say probably that the, the kind of the public transport system is a big distinguishing factor from kind of being in London and not but we know that still the vast majority of that network is not accessible to disabled people um, but aside from that there is absolutely increasing levels of isolation and exclusion whether that's through poverty ill health um hate crime <laughs> You know, so the, the, the same issues as, as you would expect if, if you, you know, have that social model of disability understanding. It's the same kind of system of, of oppression, of disabilism. It impacts on, on, 
on most of us in the same kind of ways, albeit yeah. with, with particular different emphasis and stuff. Yeah, um, you know, I always thought that when I, if I ever became a wheelchair user, I thought I would like to live in the city because I always thought, oh, that'd be great because it'd be really accessible and really neat. And then I went to London with my wife a couple of years ago now, and we stayed down the east end of London in a hotel, I don't know, Holiday Inn or something, and travel lodge. And my wife went out to go and have a look around and see where we would be able to get into and go for dinner. And I do use a wheelchair now, an electric scooter. And there wasn't one place. There wasn't one wow. bar, one cafe. We couldn't get into a restaurant. So we did a takeout, you know, got a delivery yeah. to the hotel. And so there are still lots of bits of London which are very old and, you know, old buildings with big steps to get into. There are. And I mean, there's huge, you know, everywhere you look, you, if you just do start to do a, a deeper look, there are so many issues. So, you know, we've got good planning regulations in London, but really poor enforcement. So a lot of developers know they can get away with you know they might put access in the plans but they that nobody's going to go around and check that they've actually turned that into a reality um so and then you you know you've got the, the lack of enforcement of our rights under the equality act you know around good access to goods and services so it's ongoing and i think you know austerity and now covid and the cost of living crisis this kind of perpetual crisis is going to make it even harder uh, to get our particular kind of barriers addressed because they will be pushed to the, the, the margins even more than they have been. Yeah, I mean, you talked about three things there, which, you know, I was going to talk about a bit, but sort of austerity, number one, that was, how long was that? That was 10 years of just everything being cut, cut and cut again. And then we went into the COVID pandemic. And so everything kind of all the infrastructure was there, wasn't wasn't there, in fact. And it was all so cut back, it was found it very difficult to cope with that. And as you know, as you know, I don't need to tell you, but the rate of mortality among disabled people during the COVID crisis was phenomenal. Um, and there are big issues around, you know, the government standing up and doing public broadcasting, but no British Sign Language interpreters. They didn't even have subtitles quite a lot of the time. It was you know, all a disaster. And then we come out of that and go into the cost of living crisis. And it just seems we go from one crisis to the other to the other at the moment. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, and it is going to get harder for, for you know, positive kind of campaigns and even imagining a, a kind of more positive future is going to get harder and ha harder when we are in this kind of perpetual crisis mode. And, you know, with the backdrop of the, the climate catastrophe, you know, it's not looking good. Um, so things are, it, things are gonna carry on being incredibly tough. And I think we're probably gonna have to fight even harder to get our issues kind of, you know, heard on the agenda. Um, because that kind of perpetual crisis is, is kind of happening in the world and happening in societies. And so the recent past was COVID and that was, you know, a big scar in everyone's mind of, of things that happened. What happened down here in Cornwall was, and across the country, I think, is lots of organisations weren't, lots of deaf and disabled people's organisations, they weren't so much waiting to receive telephone calls from people or inquiries from people and all of that but they became very proactive as organizations 
and started reaching out to the community, started reaching out to deaf and disabled people to find out if they needed things, started delivering medicines, PPE, all of that kind of stuff, and food, and providing... Down here in Cornwall, we had a rugby field near us where we started doing outdoor... Um, just people could meet up and do, you know, walking and talking sessions to sort of mental health so that people were in contact with other humans. How how was COVID in London? How was it being in London during the lockdown and doing all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a strange, it, I almost find it difficult to kind of think back, really, because it felt, felt like it went on forever, but also kind of quite a weird, small time I mean there's some really interesting contradictions so you're absolutely right Theo it was a disastrous time for disabled people and I think probably most of us have known kind of friends and colleagues that didn't survive through you know that complete disregard and and dismissal and um you know our needs being overlooked um so it was incredibly tough, but at the same time, I think it um, showed just how resilient our sector is. So, you know, all of the organizations that we um, support, most of them moved online pretty rapidly and pretty quickly. And as we know that, you know, again, there are some downsides to predominantly remote working, but it's very accessible for lots of people. And I think, you know, our connections to our community really proved themselves. And we were involved in a national, it was a national emergency trust. Uh, and I think they were going to give like a million quid to scope and, and <laughs> to run a helpline. And instead, they gave that money to a, a partnership of DDPOs. Um, and we distributed that to really grassroots, frontline organizations across the country that did exactly as you were saying you know got people together got people hooked up with the right kit and and kept kept connections going um, which was really vital I think in London there were some really interesting positive um, um, things happened as well so funders got together um, funders had got together after the Grenfell tragedy and kind of pulled funding to get out, to get that funding out to the community as soon as possible. And they did that again um, under COVID, but they were very, um, very aware that they need to kind of have at the foremost of their mind, kind of how do we tackle inequality? Because I think too often people, they, they have their emergency mode and think all of those issues around equality and inclusion can be put aside because we're in an emergency. And because of like our ongoing relationship with them, um, funders realised that, you know, it was communities that experienced structural inequality that were most impacted by COVID. So um, Inclusion London, alongside other equity infrastructure organisations, we were really... Um, we were funded to work with funders to distribute um, pooled funding and that's turned into some really progressive working with funders prioritizing user-led organizations being explicit about tackling structural inequality so we're really hoping that that's gonna kind of um, enable 
DDPOs in London to get access to some of that money that traditionally, you know, there's so much charitable trust money that goes to non-user-led disability charities, and that would not be acceptable in any other, you know, equality strand. The idea that, you know, you had a situation where most funding, funding kind of women's services was going to organisations run by men it would be a scandal but that is that is the situation in our space so um covid did enable us to start kind of working collectively to challenge funders about why are they still giving so much money to organizations that aren't run and controlled by disabled people it is amazing isn't it that it is still the case that 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 our space is not our space that people you know it is it is hijacked in many ways by non-disabled people to and non-DPOs. I, I find it, I do find it incredible. You know, you would never phone up a, a black minor, minoritized ethnic group and speak to a white person, or you would never phone, like you say, a women's organization and speak to a man, or you'd never phone LGBTQIA organization and speak to somebody who isn't in that group of people. Exactly. It's, it's shocking. And I think, you know, when you make those analogies, I think it does get people realising, my God, yeah. Um, and I think it just shows how deep-rooted disabilism and ableism are, because I think at the heart of it, there's this idea that we are just kind of passive recipients of other people's kind of goodwill, and we're probably not that good at running our own organisation. So I think it shows you how entrenched that kind of tr- personal tragedy medical model um, views of of disabled people are um, but that's not good enough and and you've got people that are that present themselves as progressive they need to realize it's just not acceptable and, and I think we've moved from talking to funders and saying look fund us um, as well and I think we need to be much more assertive and say if you're not funding user-led organizations you're probably actively doing harm because you can bet that non-user-led organizations are not going to have a rights-based approach are not going to um, really understand um, liberation and the importance of self-organization they're going to be no matter how much they might talk about rights they're going to be running models of kind of paternalistic support that you know we don't need so I think we need to get much more assertive with funders to say, you know, you need a bloody good exception, excuse my <laughs> language, you need a real exception not to be funding DDPOs, you know, user-led organisations. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I worked for a while with, you know, a national organisation which will stay nameless and they had a chief executive in post. And that chief executive, after three years, moved on. He wasn't a disabled person. He moved on to a different job. And they got a new chief executive in who also wasn't a disabled person who did it for three or four years and then moved on to a different job. And it seems like they almost use it as a stepping stone to get experience about running great big organisations with, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds turnover. And then they move use that experience to go move on somewhere else and they go up their career path, as it were, to yeah. just ever bigger and ever bigger. But I think I, I think that's true. I think individuals do that. But I think we've got to look from a systems perspective. And what we know is the Disability Charity Consortium 
I don't think they can point to one example where they've they've that their contacts and their FaceTime with ministers where they've said to DDPOs, hey, come along, you know, come to this meeting with us. You know, we want to kind of share this, this FaceTime that we get with, with the, the people in power with you. So they're pretty ruthless in, in maintaining their, their dominance of those, of those spaces, of, you know, the public narrative. And unfortunately, we've had a government that, um, you know, takes the same approach. It's not just kind of, you know, bad luck. I think it's only in the last probably 18 months that we've got the government to start actually engaging with us for what it's worth. Um, but they've been engaging with the Disability Charity Consortium for the last 13 years. So, you know, we're being systematically and consciously excluded. Yeah, it's amazing. And you, you mentioned earlier about the resilience of disabled people's organisations, deaf and disabled people's organisations. And I think personally that resilience of our organisations, you know, is our strength and our ability to change and act on a, you know, just on a, on a, on a note like that. We can just change and do something completely different. And that kind of comes from our experience as disabled people, because that's what we have to do every day of our lives. You go out of your house, if you go out of your house, then instantly you've got to start taking decisions and making new choices and moving and changing your plans as you go about your daily lives and so that's something which is part of us and who we are as disabled people and and because we run our organizations in that similar kind of way then we're used to you know flipping on a sixpence and you know during the covid crisis i spoke to lots of organizations some of whom have said things like, you know, this isn't anything new to us we've got staff we've always worked at home always you know we've got staff working at home from bed and they always have. So it's not a new thing for us. So, you know, that kind of resilience, I think, is a real strength. But it's it's kind of seen as a, you know, the, the public narrative is about our sort of acting under, you know, duress, I suppose, or in difficult circumstances. Yeah, or just our inability to really do anything ourselves, you know, that yeah. kind of passiveness. I mean, I agree. I think we are resilient. And the fact that after 13 years of austerity and I really I really don't think that we can overestimate the, the detrimental impact that austerity has had on our communities our movement but also this society I mean you know I think it's quite clear that you know public services are breaking down and crumbling and failing because of that chronic um, um, lack of funding um and these are services that that many of us need um so i think um we are resilient but i think we need to start getting assertive and saying you know we need more because we are in survival mode and that is having an impact on our ability to to connect with people that aren't identifying as disabled people it's impacting on our ability to become more reflective of our communities we need to get more intersectional we need to be reaching out to younger disabled people um, we need to be developing our next generation of leaders and all of that kind of movement building we have no capacity or resources to do that 
I mean, we've got um, through kind of lobbying relationships, we've got a funder in London called Trust for London that has heard us and has created a disability justice fund. And this is a fund that you can only access if you're a, a disabled people's organisation. And it's not for service delivery, it's, it's funding for the movement building stuff. You know, all of that glue that, that actually is the stuff that changes things and, and, and keeps the community alive and, and kind of moving forward. So that's a hugely welcome thing. And that's kind of where we need to be getting to, um, because I think, you know, we've been hollowed out. I think one of the big, big key messages from the research that we did about the state of our sector is that we've been, our sector's been hollowed out to kind of just the kind of contract culture, less is more and service delivery. And you couple that with an increasingly hostile environment with local authorities saying we give you money to run an advice service which, and which means that you can't speak up or challenge challenge us publicly or we're going to take your contract away you know this stuff happens it's real um so there's a huge kind of silencing you know elements to this kind of contract culture um that is is really kind of really restricting our ability to kind of create the movement that we need um, you know, now and in the future. You know, there's lots in there to talk about. One of the things that I, so this project I've just been running was called Disabled People's Organisation Sharing Experiences During COVID, and that was funded by the National Lottery. And they had a lived experience, um, leaders of lived experience um, funding stream, which I think Inclusion London was part of for the first phase. Mm. And one of the questions we were on a Zoom meeting, and there's lots of different organisations there, some of which were disabled people's organisations and some of which were not. And the question went out there, so what would enable your organisation to thrive? And that really made me think, because back in the 70s and the 80s, if you go right back to when disabled people's organisations started coming into existence, I think our idea about what we were going to be doing as organisations is fundamentally different from what our organisations are actually doing now. And I think to go back to those sort of early roots and start thinking about what would what would we do to thrive? What would we be doing? We'd be building a culture. We'd be changing culture. We'd be campaigning. We'd be doing all sorts of different things. Whereas now a lot of organisations spend so much time doing contract delivery for local authorities, for health bodies or for whoever it might be. Um, and we're following all those short-term contracts all the time, which seems to me like, the role of DPOs has just massively changed over the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. And I think one of the problems is we never have time to even do that, that kind of reflection. Yeah. You know? But I mean, looking back, I think probably the, I mean, in a way, you know, we were just reacting to an environment, but I think, you know, all of that campaigning in the late 80s and, and early 90s, um it did it did create things like the dda but you know you then had that new labor get in and it was like yeah we get it you don't need to convince us and let's work together to kind of deliver this equality um so as well as setting things up like equality 2025 i laugh at the, even the thought now um you know they had lots of um work around you know every lo locality should have a 
GDPR and they should be running this range of services. And I think we probably did turn away from campaigning and influencing in a, in a kind of explicit way. So when, you know, the financial crash came and all of that kind of service user engagement opportunities just stopped overnight, um, we suddenly had nowhere to kind of no no mechanisms for influencing. And then when, you know, the impact of the financial crash hit and austerity um, was brought in, coupled with an ideological government that wanted to get reduce disability benefit take up by 20% and, and wasn't interested in, in kind of a large state. We, we had nowhere to go and it, we, we were just kind of trapped in service delivery that was just getting harder and harder. So we definitely need a really concerted um, time now with movement building where we focus more on ourselves. I mean, I think individually as a disabled person and in the organizations that I've worked with, I think probably in hindsight, we spent too long knocking on the doors of power saying, you know, open up and listen to us and not enough just building our own communities and doing that more kind of that that consciousness raising that that kind of here here kind of development. And I think we do need to do more of that because that's where the resilience comes from. But that's also where all the innovation comes from. I mean, you look at what we've achieved as a movement, you know, not just creating the social model of disability, but, you know, self-directed support and the concept of kind of independent living, um, you know, really critical things that have, you know, gone out into the mainstream. Yes, they've got hollowed out, but, um, you know, we, we've had a huge impact and we need to do more of that that kind of positive policy development work that, that we're trying to do, you know, through with Reclaiming Our Futures Alliance and the Disabled People's Forum, a Disabled People's Organisations Forum, you know, with like the National Independent Living um, kind of strategy. We're trying to kind of map out positive visions, which, as I said right at the beginning, gets really hard when you're just protecting the bare minimum of what you've, you, you're still you know, grabbing hold of, you know, it, it's hard to think positively about developing stuff when you're doing rearguard actions to protect what you've already got most of the time. Yeah, I mean, the, the DPO, DDPO movement has done a lot and we do need to remember the positives about what we have done. You know, I often talk to people and say, you know, if I was born 100 years ago, my life would be just fundamentally different. Um, 50 years ago, even my life was fundamentally different. I remember when I was growing up in the 70s, you know, I wasn't a disabled person then, but you never saw wheelchairs, you never saw wheelchair users, you never saw electric, of course, you never saw electric scooters because they'd never been invented. But the numbers of disabled people out in the community was really, really hard to see. We are much more visible. We are in our communities much more and having, having lives that other people have as well. Um, there is still oh. poverty. There is still a long way to go. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think you're right, but, you know, I, I think that's falling away again. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at if you look at who's running DDPOs now, I mean, we, we've got a challenge about even 
um, recruiting and retaining disabled people in our sector, and, and that gets kind of harder at a leadership level. So the number of non-disabled people leading our organisations is increasing. And disabled people that do lead our organisations, and I include myself in that, don't have high support needs. Where when I came into the movement and sector 30 years ago, most of the kind of the big organisations were run by disabled people, you know, with high support needs who would have been a generation before, you know, locked up in those Leonard Cheshire homes. But, you know, that's not the case now because of the failed social surf, social care independent living um, system, you know, people are not, people just don't have the support to, to kind of, to do that anymore. So we are seeing a, a retrogression of exactly those, that kind of progress. Um, and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to show that this new generation of disabled people that it is possible because we've done it already, you know, and we mustn't forget what we've achieved and um, and how kind of diverse we, we did look in lots of ways. I mean, um, there's lots of big deals in there. One of the big deals is how do we get younger disabled people? I've spoke to many disabled people's organisations and they said we don't know how to attract younger disabled people. How do we get them into our organisations and how do we persuade them to stay there? And yeah. that, you know, the organisations that we built and we know now, they might well change in the future with younger disabled people getting on board and changing the way things are. But that's the future. That's kind of what we need to do. But how do we do that? That is a that is a big deal, isn't it? It really is. And I think for me, that's part of the movement building piece, you know, because we've been trapped in chronically underfunded service delivery, we've never had that opportunity to reach out and engage with younger disabled people or disabled people of colour or disabled people from the LGBTQI community. You know, we've got huge challenges around diversity, the lack of diversity um, and huge intergenerational challenges. Um, and we need to do that movement building and funders need to fund us to do that. And I think we, we need to, you know, really create spaces that are not pressurized, that are not like you've got four meetings to solve how you're gonna tackle intergenerational work. We need to build up trust and we need to start listening to each other because probably it's the wrong question. How can we get younger disabled people into our organizations? It's like, what do younger disabled people need yeah. to lead their own stuff? And what can we learn from that? I know it's very easy to say and really hard to do. I mean, we if we're hoping we're going to get some funding from the Disability Justice Fund to do some to start doing some of that movement building in London. And for us, that that's a combination of we we aim to do a combination of free disability quality training, free intersectional anti-racist training, and free co-production training. And for us it's quite clear that these are really three areas that are very much interlinked or should be and are kind of underpinning foundational concepts and skills and we want to we want to get that training and get as many people involved in our sector on that training but we also want to create opportunities for people disabled people to come together to kind of 
reflect on the training, think about what that means, but also just start to have conversations. So we are going to try and start to create those, those spaces. Um, so it's quite an exciting time um, um, in London. And I'm hoping that kind of what we learn, um, you know, we're committed to sharing that. But yeah, it, it, it takes time and effort to reach out to young disabled people and, and start to, to, to build a relationship where we can start exploring this stuff together. You know, and other groups, like we said, intersectionality, I think, is a real big deal within the sector. You can yeah. pinpoint specific organisations that work with particular, you know, intersectional groups, minority groups across the country, but they're few and far between. You certainly, you know, there's none in the southwest, really. There's, you know, there are whole bits of the country with no representation at all for particular groups of people, which I find really problematic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think kind of we've definitely been on a on a, the beginning of a journey around intersectionality. And I, you know, speaking personally, I think I have probably spent most of my time in the movement kind of with that thinking that, you know, society out there doesn't even think of disability as an equalities issue. So we've just got to get disability on the agenda and get people to see, yes, you know, this is on par with, um, you know, race and gender. But I think what I completely failed to realise is that that's true, but just talking about disability in a generic sense brings lots and you exclude lots and lots of voices. And effectively, that is a, is a white default perspective. Um, and, you know, that might be less challenging in the Southwest, but it's just not acceptable in London. <laughs> so, um, you know, really understanding that we can keep that focus, but we can have that disability equality focus through an intersectional lens. So what does independent, what are the issues around independent living for black disabled people or disabled people from the LGBTQI community? You know, what is the impact of cost of living crisis on disabled women? These are things that, you know, we apps have to be central to what we do. Um, so, yeah, we're at the beginning of, of, of kind of realising that and understanding that. But I think it's pretty, it's, it's essential for us to be representative of our communities. But ultimately, I think that is the way we start building alliances outside of our movement. And ultimately, you know, we do need to jo join forces with other social justice movements. Um, and so the more kind of intersectional we are, the more likely that that is to happen as well. Yeah, I think there's real learning to have to be had from different 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 political movements. If you think about the politics of the 1970s, it was a real kind of, you know, a hotbed of activity in the country and there was all the sort of the black power movement and there was all the gay early days of the gay pride movement and then there was the disability rights movement and in many ways the other two the other yeah. two movements that I mentioned they've really gone to a different level and I think that although we have as a sector changed and we do we we are in a different space from the space that we were in back then we don't have that that kind of public visibility in the same kind of way that the other movements do have. We don't have people on telly all the time. We don't have people 
in the media all the time representing us and talking about us yeah I mean I would say that that's I would say that kind of us our exclusion from the media is is shared by black organizations or women-led organizations or LGBTQI organizations I think we're all very marginalized um you know from 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 the media and from that kind of public space which is why we need to do more you know cross-sector working um to, to challenge that but I think you know we've been living in a very depoliticized even though it's been one of the most ideologically driven and political kind of decades you know it, it's it's not a coincidence that there's also been a kind of massive attempt at depoliticization um and we need to kind of we need to challenge that and that's for me why the social model you know, is still so vital uh, as a kind of critical tool to understanding how people with impairment are disabled by society. Um, and we've, we've got to, um, we've got to, we think about that, we have to see how it applies to different groups of, of disabled people. Um, we need to be better at explaining that the social model doesn't deny impairment. That's a kind of quite a criticism that we're getting quite a lot but you know it's a it, it it's a category error it's like kind of complaining that a car doesn't fly you know the social model is there to understand how society disables us it's not there to talk about the the kind of personal individual or even possibly the collective experience of impairment it's about how society disables us and we mustn't you know, we mustn't undermine the social model because it's not talking about impairment. I think we as a movement need to do more. I think we do need to create spaces where we can talk about impairment. And um, and I think partly that's maybe why we, why we haven't um, been as inclusive as we should have been um, and still aren't. Um, particularly, you know, if you've got a fluctuating condition or you're somebody who experiences mental distress, you know, you need to kind of, these are real, you know, impairments are real thing too. But, um, and I think we haven't talked enough about it, but it's a very different, it, it's, it's one side of the same coin, really. But, you know, we mustn't, we mustn't allow the, the social consequences of impairment you, you know all of the discrimination the poverty we we can't let that be collapsed back into impairment again and and essentialized which is kind of what what i think you know people that don't want to be challenged would like it to happen yeah i mean the social model for me i don't understand why it's not you know on the agenda in the classroom and it's not something that's taught it's not, it's just not a thing you know you, you go up to people in the street they won't know what that is the social model of disability yeah. and you go out to many disabled people and they won't know what it is particularly yeah. the younger generation and it's you know it's scandalous that it's just not out there and it's not it's not taught and understood yeah and we um, and that again for me is a part of the movement building you know that you know we have to do that movement building now and that is it is having those conversations it is sharing that knowledge about the social model and it is being up for debate about it and critiquing it. And but, you know, we need to create spaces where we can even do that, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, 
And I think funders, I mean, ideally a progressive government would want to help us do that, but you know, progressive funders need to be funding that. There's no question about it. Yeah. They're not at the moment. They need to understand it themselves as well. Yeah, they need to get it themselves. Yeah. And that's all well and good, and that's brilliant, and that's a great conversation, and that's really good and interesting and all of that. We haven't even talked about ROFA or ROFA. <laughs> so ROFA is Reclaiming Our Futures Alliance, and you're you're very involved in that. I think we were you one of the co-creators of the of that organization. Yeah. Yes. And well, so, I mean that I mean, would you explain what it is? What is ROFA? Well, we're not quite sure what it is at the moment, Theo, because to be honest. Um, Reclaiming Our Futures Alliance, I say Rofa, everybody else says Rofa. <laughs> you know, we, we've never had any money. So Rofa is, an, is a loose alliance of DDPOs that kind of came together in the early 2010s, basically in response to, you know, the, the, the kind of the first wave of austerity and the lack of a national voice that reflected grassroots DDPOs. So we're very committed to speaking truth to power. Um, we're very committed about reflecting the real life experiences and issues of disabled people and, and DDPOs on the ground. And we um, set up a totally non-funded alliance. And given that we've had no money, I think we've, we've made important interventions around kind of election time with manifestos and through the development of the, this national independent living strategy and probably the the UN uh, disability committees periodic review of the UK back in 2017 we we harnessed and gathered 200 pages of evidence from DDPOs to put into that that kind of shadow report to the disability committee that ended up with, you know, a damning report from the UN disability committee about the kind of quote human catastrophe that you know welfare reform and and other austerity measures were having on on disabled people in the UK. So we've made um, some important interventions, but we haven't had the chance to develop the alliance as a kind of structure. Um, yet because we haven't had you know any funding we we what's an exciting development development for us now is is the disabled people's organizations forum the dd the dpo forum in england and that came out of i think it was four meetings of the government you know succumbing to pressure to engage with ddpos they, they set up this forum and they, they disbanded it within like four or five meetings um, because it was too challenging for them. But we, we the, the small group of DPOs that were in on that forum have kept it going. And so that forum's got about 35 members and we are, that forum is starting now to kind of meet a bit more strategically with a disability unit um, and and the kind of the revolving door of ministers for disabled people. Um, but yeah, you know, so there is another, there is another voice, and, and I think that could potentially be something that 
more DPOs, and I want to speak to you about that, Theo, could kind of coalesce around because it is a strategic forum. And, you know, we, we've met with the Fabian Society that are doing, you know, some kind of work for the Labour Party about social care. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a potential forum for influencing at a national level, which is what ROFA was all about. Um, so I don't know the future of, of Reclaiming Our Futures Alliance because of all of those issues around no funding, no staff. Um, but, you know, there will, we will be lobbying and influencing around the next general election, which is an opportunity that we all must grasp. Um, but yeah, I don't know long-term future, but I think we've done not a bad job with no money to kind of, you know, to, to, to use the opportunities that come our way over the last 10 years. You know, I would, you know, A, no money, but B, at least one other job every single one of you has had. You know, you're a chief executive of an organisation in London, a pan-impairment organisation across the whole city of London. And you are seriously involved in ROFA a lot over the years. I saw the photograph of you taking the document to Brussels. Was that Brussels or Geneva? Geneva. Yeah, that was back in 2017. And that was like a real high mark, I think, of, 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 of a system that, that enabled us to have, you know, gather evidence and actually have face time with people. <laughs> you know, had some power and influence. And, and, it, and it showed that, you know, it was a damning report that came out of the UN Disability Committee. I ended up terrifyingly on Newsnight being interviewed by Emily Maitlis. You know, we, we, we got a little glimmer of, of, of leverage. And um, I think it shows, it shows what we can do and, and, you know, and we expect and hope that whoever forms the next government will be working with us much more strategically because, you know, nothing about us without us. It's our expertise, lived and learned, that, that is going to kind of really uh, enable us to tackle the, the systemic discrimination and inequality that, that our communities experience. And, and the next government has to co-produce and work with us in a really deep, strategic way. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, you got a picture through that work with Rofa and by, by being involved with Geneva, I guess, of the international perspective. I mean, how was it? Was it any different when you went to Geneva? We, was it well received? Was it... Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we were, I think, as I said, it was the first experience in those seven years of actually being listened to um, and being respected and and heard. I mean, it's telling that, you know, that the the report was dismissed by the UK government on the day it was produced. And that kind of denial of our experience is a is a kind of ongoing char characteristic of of kind of engagement with the with the UK government, which kind of just has destroyed all trust. Yeah, um, wasn't the government found to be in contravention of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Human Rights of um, Disabled People? Well, I mean, it was it was declared, you know, a human catastrophe. It was a like a thirty-two page document, and there was one paragraph of good practice, and the rest was concern after concern, and they were put on. I've forgotten the term, some kind of optional 
um, protocol whereby the disability committee was so concerned about the the um, the um, the impact on human rights of disabled people that they kind of put almost the, the UK government in special measures and required them to report every year on some key factors around benefits, independent living, um, and I think kind of the state of, of key services. So yeah, they were, um, I mean, they were found to have systematically, um, um, you, you know, abused the human rights of disabled people um, because there was also a investigation launched by the Disability Committee, you know, requested by Disabled People Against Cuts um, to investigate the impact of welfare reform. So that, that was damning and found there was a systematic violation of disabled people's rights. And then you had the periodic review of the UK government that was equally damning. So, um, but again, it's very difficult when you have a government that doesn't seem to be bothered about its, <laughs> it, you know, um, because there's been a whole number of different UN conventions where the government has been found, you know, really wanting, and they don't seem to have, you know, that type of reputation doesn't seem to bother this government, unfortunately. No, they want to leave it, don't they? You know, the convention on well, the rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable to say. Yeah. Well, just look at the latest illegal uh, migration bill. Yeah. Legal being the operative word now, I think. Well, that's that's nearly an hour of your time, which is your time is very precious. Thank you very much for that. What what is there anything you'd like to say at the end which would sum it all up or anything that I haven't said or anything that you haven't said or oh it's been a great, a great um great hour talking with you, Theo. I mean, I think for me there's it's clear that we need to do that movement building and yeah, we need money and resources, but I think all of us need to need to kind of create time and space to, to meet and talk and, and debate and, and see how we can, you know, protect our movement and, and develop it and grow it. Um, so I think that's, that's a call, a call for all of us. Um, and I think we need to do much more coming together and trying to build consensus and unity because it is true, you know, we haven't got cat and hell's chance if we're divided. And, and you know, our experiences are so shared that we need to, we need to really build that kind of collective voice, I think, and work. I mean, our experiences are so shared wherever we are in the country and whoever we are, if we are a disabled person, then we are all experiencing the same things as each other. There are differences, but there are enormous similarities across the board. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's been a great hour. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, well, thanks, Theo.